Good morning. Well, it's good to be back. I was, uh, as you know, last two weekends, Christy and I were in Germany. First weekend, we did presentations in Berlin, and the second weekend, we were in Aachen. And um, we uh, did uh, presentations on a new series that I'm developing this fall. We're going to do a series here in town. But anyway, we did those talks, and they were, were very well received in Germany. People were very enthusiastic about uh, this perspective we're presenting it over there. So, and of our friends in, in uh, Deutschland, uh, good morning, and uh, wie geht's? So, let's uh, begin with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your blessings and your goodness. We thank you for your love and the way you run your universe. We ask that you'll send your spirit to join us this morning, that our minds will draw to you, and we will understand your, your kingdom and your methods, and our hearts will fill with your love. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number six in the quarterly revival and reformation, and the title this week is Confession and Repentance, the Conditions of Revival. And the memory text is from Proverbs 28.13, and it says, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. How do you hear this text? That's just what God is like. That's just what God is like. What do you hear about the idea of covering and or forsaking one's sins? Does it make a difference if we, you know, the two lenses we contrast things through here in the last year or so? Does it make a difference if you look at this text through the the imposed lens versus the natural law lens? I I used to, a few years ago, I would have heard this, that uh, God's mercy is conditional. His mercy is conditional on our... Our behavior, our... Whatever. And those who cover their bad deeds get caught. Will be caught, tried, found guilty, and punished. Isn't that kind of how it felt? But but how about if we look through the natural law lens? Is it more like those who cover their disease will not partake the remedy, and the disease only worsens until killing them? But those who acknowledge their diseased hearts, minds, and characters, confessing before God their true condition and need, will find merciful healing and transformation of character. Does it make, does it make more sense this way? Yeah. All right. Sundays, Sundays, let's go to jump to Sunday. First paragraph. It says, During the weeks before Pentecost, the disciples earnestly sought God in prayer. Acts one fourteen says that they were in one accord in prayer and supplication. This experience of one accord reveals a strong unity and harmony amongst Christ's followers that would, ha- would not have been possible without repentance and confession. Prayer and confession prepared them for what was going to come. What do you think it means to be in one accord? In one accord. Yes. All looking out for the benefit of the other. Oh, I like that. All interested in the welfare of the other. Okay. Yeah, other thoughts? Like-minded. Like-minded in regard to the, the ten horns, the identification of the ten horns of Daniel 7. Um, the like-minded in who we should eat with and associate with. Remember, Peter had to be corrected by Paul sometime after this, right? They weren't like-minded on some of these elements. How about like-minded on what foods were appropriate to eat? There was a, a meeting that came later where they had to make a decision on whether they should eat you know, food offered to idols or not. They, they weren't like-minded on this yet. But they were in one accord, but they still had lots of differences, didn't they? Yeah. And whether to circumcise or not circumcise. Weren't they, they hadn't had that conference committee call yet, had they? No. Um, so when it says they were in one accord, 
do we sometimes get kind of this Pollyanna view that they all agreed on everything? Did they? No, so, yes. So, so what was it? What does it mean then? One accord. What does it really mean? How about did they agree for upon their need for Jesus? Did they have agreement on that? Did, did they have agreement that Jesus was a true revelation of God? Yeah, I think so. Did they see Jesus as God in human form? Yes, I think they were united on that. How about, were they united in their longing for his presence? Yes, they were united on that. Um, could it also be they agreed on their inability to fix their own condition, their own situation? They couldn't fix it. Their own condition of heart, they couldn't resolve. They couldn't fix. They were, in other words, they were all in the same boat, and they looked to each other with compassion and grace, rather than with criticism and judgment. Even though they're aware of faults in each other, could that be something they were in one accord? Because they all recognize we suffer from the same condition of heart, and we all need Christ. Um, could it be that they saw God's kingdom finally? as the kingdom of love rather than a kingdom of law. In other words, they, they, they were turning away from Phariseeism and seeing... seeing and it, really trying to pull them away from that because of the old tradition. Yes. And do you think they were coming into agreement on God's methods of truth, love, and freedom? You see, can there be unity... On the, on the principles of God's kingdom, while we still may not see the interpretation of, of, of Daniel 11 in the same way. Can we have unity on God's principles while maybe somebody baptizes different than we do? Or, or, or not? Hmm. What about today? So today, when we talk about unity in Christ, should we, as Christians, be reaching out of our denominational boundaries to be unifying with Christians on common ground, or should we continue to seg- se- you know, dissect and, and, and segregate ourselves away uh, and, and demand separation based on the way we baptize, the way we perform communion, what day we worship upon, what foods we eat, the 2300-day prophecy and how we understand it. What about our atonement model? Should this be a requirement for, for coming to the unity of Christ? We have to agree on the atonement model. The mark of the beast. I mean, when we think about unity that God, because it says in Scripture that he's bringing all things together under one head, even Christ. Christ is trying to bring us back into at one mint atonement, and into unity, and wants us to be at one as he and the Father are one. Well, on the bottom of that page there, quote White, it says, Don't they can bear witness in their lives to the loveliness of Christ's character. Ah, okay, bear witness in their lives to the loveliness of Christ's character. That, you, you could actually, ha- are you saying you could actually go on the right day and want to crucify Christ? In other words, you could have a right doctrine but still be against Christ and not have loveliness of his character? Sure. Yeah. Why do you think there's so little unity? And so, the the things we need to be unified on, Christ's character, that's exactly right. His methods, principles. Um, How about God being designer versus dictator? 
That we need to see God in, in, in a way that he's the builder, the creator, the designer, the healer, the restorer, or, or the dictator. How about unity in our knowledge of our need for Christ? Do we need to have that unity at least? We need him. We can't do it on our own. But why is there so little unity in Christianity? As you know, according to the Christian Encyclopedia, there's 34,000 different Christian groups. Maybe now that we're over here, there's 34,001. <laughs> I mean, why are we over here? Why isn't there not unity? How is it that Satan is so successful in causing division and disunity when Jesus brought a message of love and unity? And we are all supposedly following Jesus. Why aren't we, in, why aren't we unified? Why aren't we together? Why aren't we supportive of each other? Why are we always dividing? Dividing, dividing. Yes? Once before, I lived in a, a town that was noted for its educational um, system. And... Um, I had a patient uh, who was a Catholic priest, and he was very concerned that our church in that town had multiple different congregations based on ethnicity and worship styles and whatnot. And uh, he said, I could never worship in a way that was so divisive. And yet, when I looked at that same situation, I didn't see it as divisive at all. People were being met in the worship styles in which they felt comfortable. I have tried to go to a a church service with a different ethnic focus, and it's been very difficult for me to appreciate God in that same vernacular. Because of what I hear, because of how I listen, how my ears are tuned. So you're suggesting that one of the reasons there's division is a is a a, uh, a healthy division where where God is and the Holy Spirit are, are trying to reach people where they are. That it's not a divisiveness of of argument and 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 disagreement. It's a, it's a uh, meeting people where people come from all different backgrounds and walks, and the Holy Spirit is is reaching out and building up groups uh, from all these different walks. If, if that, in fact, is so, and I'm not arguing it's not, should we expect there to be a trend where they're coming closer and closer and, the, and those dividing walls are breaking down as the message that we get in the New Testament? He came to break the division between Jew and Gentile and these ethnic groups that we all come together in unity. Those groups should be able to work together to a common goal without divisiveness and competitiveness. In the back, way in the back. A viewer says, hearts are closed to the truth. They accept the truth they perceive being complete in their minds. Okay. Thank you for that comment. Yes. Two comments. One of them is just to expand on what Wendell said. Um, I think that Satan's success is not in dividing groups, but in making us feel that this division is is in in and of itself bad. Because he's right. I mean, we, we tend to, when there are several churches in your area, you tend to go to one that, that, that has a style of worship that you like, that, that, that seems to be on that same thing. But that doesn't mean that the focus of the church is different. It just means that you tend to gather with people that, that you have a lot of similarity with. 
The other thing is, is, is as far as divisions are concerned, and I'm not referring to this particular group, but we are told to, I mean, Jesus said, if you go to a town and you're not accepted, shake the dirt off your sandals and leave. And, and I think that a lot of times groups are, are divided be, over, over issues that may not be deeply theological, but they may be over, you know, a head elder wears that wears a wedding band. You know, should we even allow that? You know, I mean, it's trivial stuff a lot of times that 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 divides us. But sometimes it's not necessarily so so trivial. Okay, I, there there are two there are two threads. Mike, right here. Yeah. I, was just gonna say, I think organizations are naturally driven by self interest because if they aren't, they die and are replaced by something else. And so at some point in their evolution or development, uh, that sort of takes over. That's why you have so many unique brands. That's the way they survive. Mm -hmm. So the organization becomes self-perpetuating. Evangelism is not about bringing people to Christ, but bringing people to the organization. Yeah, and, and and, and the monies, tithes, and offerings are not to promote the gospel. They're to sustain the organization under the guise of promoting the gospel. That's what I, that's what I thought he said. Okay, <laughs> and he said right. Yes. You look at a tradition, traditional ways that people go to church or synagogue or whatever, and I think if they don't see some of those same trappings, then they they they, they feel like a fish out of water. I think. Michael. Yeah. I think a lot of it is because people want to feel superior. They bring on these other issues, and they if anyone else doesn't agree with me, they're they're less than what what, what I am. They're not enlightened. They, they can't be as good. And so they just, it, it gives them a superior feeling. Okay, and I saw a hand over in the back. Yes. Yeah. One of the elements of one accord is that of voluntary. You have to remember that it's a volunteering choice that I make. I don't have to be a part of that group. So voluntary is one of the concepts there. So I'm hearing again two basic threads for division. One is the, the that we because of our cultures, because of our backgrounds, because we come from different experiences, the Holy Spirit does reach out to try to meet us where we are and bring us back to Him, and we'll speak the language that we can understand. So whether it's just actual language, English, German, whatever, uh, or whether it's the cultural language, the Holy Spirit meet, reaches us with Wendell saying, "Because this can be a positive thing." But if I look at that type of division. My expectation is we're going to see the reverse of Babylon happening. In Babylon, God confused the languages because they were uniting against him, and it caused the division to slow the spread of evil. But at the end of time, we're having the reverse of this, where we have the one of the gifts of the Spirit talked about in the New Testament is the gift of tongues, where, where the, the gospel message transcends those barriers to bring all back into one accord. So I would expect there to be a gradual unifying of people uh, as they come into Christ, as they're, as they're united. This is what we're going to expect when he comes. I don't, I don't expect in heaven to have Chinatown, to have, you know, in the New Jerusalem, we have the corner Chinatown, we've got the, uh, the Russian section. We, I'm not expecting that. Uh, maybe some of you are. I, maybe it will be that way. I, I just don't, I don't see it that way, though. I don't see us divided ethnically when we get to heaven. I, I see us coming back into a real unity where there is not, these divisions go away. And this is what it says in Christ. There is no male or female, Jew or Greek, um, this type of thing. But I was really wanting to focus a little more on the other division. The division which I think is divisive. A divisive division, a division where we're pitted against each other, we're right, they're wrong, you have to leave because you're apostatizing, you teach heresy, you, 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 you're, not, you're of the devil, 
I had a lady tell me at, in church that I wasn't welcome because I was of the devil. <laughs> and you know why that happened? I'll tell you why it happened. I'll, I'll tell you a little story. It wasn't in my notes. I'll tell you. <laughs> I was, uh, I was uh, a major in the U.S. Army and stationed at uh, Fort, uh, Fort Stewart, Georgia. And uh, we didn't have a, uh, a, a denominational church. So I worshipped on on the on the military base in the chapel, and they had uh, Sabbath services for Adventists on Saturday morning. For the Adventists in the military, is about thirty of us in the in the twenty thousand soldiers, about thirty uh, there. And we would come. She was a lady from the local uh, Savannah Church that would come in and and provide um, some leadership and so forth. And um, and they didn't have a musician, so a volunteer, very nice lady who was Baptist lady who worked in the x-ray department at the hospital, volunteered each Saturday to come out and play the piano to, for music for us. It was very nice. And, and one weekend, uh, the, the lesson was on Matthew 5 about um, God didn't, uh, as, as Matthew 5, Christ said, I didn't change one jot or tittle of the law until all things were fulfilled, so forth and so on. And they, and they looked at this woman, the, the, the Sabbath school leader and this other lady, looked at this woman who was, who was a volunteer to play for us and said, you know that the Sabbath hasn't been changed and you're sinning to worship on Sunday, you know, this kind of stuff. And I'm going, wait a minute. Here she loves us enough to volunteer her time to come out here, and, and yet, and, and you're going to criticize this. And then I went down how the people who crucified Christ wanted him off the cross by sunset in order to, you know, keep the Sabbath, and you can have the day, but have the heart of the enemy, and uh, you're the devil. <laughs> you're the devil. <laughs> okay? Divisiveness. Was I being divisive? Hmm. Yes. 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 Christ said he came to bring a sword to sever. But what are we divisive from what? Does a surgeon ever use a scalpel to excise? Disease. Yes. And we want to wield the sword of truth to divide the lies and the distortion, the, the, the selfishness and the love so we can restore love in the heart. There's a hand somewhere. Okay, Carla. The, the part of the separation of groups that bothers me is what, it's, it's what you're talking about. It's when the group develops this list of requirements that it's like you have to corral everybody in. And to do that, you have to have a lot of rules of what you have to think and what you have to do. And if someone starts thinking outside of the box or, or having any individuality more, then I don't like it that they can't be part of the group, not by choice, but because they're kicked out of the group or pushed out of the group. <laughs> I like where you're going with this. I think the problems arise right down the line that you're going when we divorce, separate doctrine from their primary purpose. What's the primary purpose of each doctrine? Should be to reveal the character of God. <clears throat> the primary purpose of each doctrine is somehow to let inform you in some way about God's true nature, character, methods, and principles. But when we sever that connection, and then we build standalone doctrines with proof text, Sabbath is seventh day of the week, state of the dead is this way, blah, 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 and we stand them up like our little dominoes to make that test that you now have to adhere to, and they're no longer connected in any way with who God is and how we see him, uh, and they become this imposed list of rules under that imposed model, and then God becomes the enforcer of all those rules. And we just divorce the divine character. This is, what, this, is, this is a big division. It's only by putting these doctrines back in the context, anchoring them and say, okay, if you want to talk a doctrine, then you have to tell me 
How does that reveal God? That's the key. If I can't find God in that doctrine, why are you telling it to me? What's its, what's its purpose? Just to keep a rule? Well, if you don't baptize in this way, then have you heard this one? If you don't have the words, baptizing the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you can't be saved. Said over you when you're baptized. You hear me? Think, the, think that through. I, I've had other Christians tell me that. From various denominational walks. It doesn't, it's, not, it's not a denominational thing. It, it, it's kind of an idea that gets out there. Imagine how that looks to a non-believer. Someone who comes into that church seeking something. Yeah. They see this, and they say, well, there's nothing here for me. Exactly. Exactly. Yes? Uh, just a question on that. So if you start peeling the doctrines back, you're kind of looking for the beneficial core. Where do you stop because, for example, the early church had no doctrine about the Trinity. But the, you know, the bishops in Rome at some point had to argue about that. And they had you know, bright scholars on all sides of it. And they finally had to pick one view and turn that into a creed. And we feel like that's important today, but you know, how, where do you stop if you start peeling it back? See, is it a requirement for salvation that you have to know about and adhere to the Trinity doctrine. It's not. It is not. All those people in the Old Testament, many of them never had that doctrine. And as you said, the early church didn't promote that doctrine as a doctrine. They promoted in the early church Jesus, the Holy Spirit. You can see all those talked about. And, and the Father, they were promoted. But not as a Trinity doctrine. I don't think it's a requirement, do you? We have our 27 fundamental beliefs. 28, excuse me. We keep updating, don't we? <laughs> 28 fundamentals. Uh, and, uh, and, of course, they're not a creed, are they? Do you all know why they're not a creed? One of the founders of our church, and you know who I'm talking about, said that we have only one creed in this church, and it's the Bible. Amen. The Bible is our only creed. So how could we make a... And so we can't have a creed. We can have a list of fundamental beliefs. If you look up a dictionary, you know what a creed is? A list of fundamental beliefs. <laughs> yeah. The games we play, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, it's like uh, we, uh, if the church uh, decides this and we put it in print... That, that's it. That settles it. Nobody can challenge this now, you see. Nobody is to disagree with this. That's all fortunate. Yeah, let, let's, let's move on. Let's move on, because there's some really good stuff in this lesson. Um, this says that, it says in the lesson that repentance is a gift from God. What do you understand that to mean, repentance is a gift from God? And it makes the point that Peter makes the point that repentance is a gift from God. For to give us, in his speech in Acts, uh, you know, he sent the Holy Spirit, for to give us repentance. Yes. Because as a human being, you're not inclined to ask for forgiveness without the power of God. Okay. Um, so let's define what is repentance. You're going down. Yeah. What is it? Turning away. Turning away. Is it, is, is it, is it bigger and broad? Is it a change of heart motive? A change of heart desire? The, the thing that was actually attractive, that sin that used to be attractive to you, actually becomes repulsive to you now. You don't, you don't, you're not attracted to it anymore. Your heart really has changed. Isn't this part of what repentance is? Yes. yes. And it's 
is a product of revealing or of seeing God's true character. The kindness of God leads us to repentance. Yes, yes. So, so can we do that to, for our own heart? Can we change our own heart in this way? This is why it's a gift. This, tra- this re- regeneration, this healing, this transformational uh, experience that we get is a gift from God. That's exactly right. Um, in preparation for the classes, we came along a quotation of a book called Faith and Works, page 38. Listen to this, <clears throat> page 38. Repentance, as well as forgiveness, is the gift of God through Christ. It is through the influence of the Holy Spirit that we are convicted of sin and feel our need of pardon. None but, now, we're going to come back to this, te- this, this next sentence we're going to come back to. None but the contrite are forgiven. But it is the grace of God that makes the heart penitent. He is acquainted with all of our weakness and infirmities, and he will help, help us. Some who come to God by repentance and confession, and even, even believe that their sins are forgiven, still fail of claiming all they should, as they should, the promises of God. They do not see that Jesus is an ever-present Savior, and they are not ready to commit the keeping of their souls to him, relying upon him to perfect the work of grace begun in their hearts. While they think they are committing themselves to God, there is a great deal of self-dependence. There are, there are conscientious souls that trust partly to God and partly to themselves. They do not look to God to be kept by his power, but depend upon watchfulness against temptation and the performance of certain duties for acceptance with him. There are, there are no victories in this kind of faith. Such persons toil to no purpose. Their souls are in continual bondage. They find no rest until their burdens are laid at the feet of Jesus. Wow, I read that and I thought, that was my church. That's the church I grew up in. Did anybody else grow up in that church? This was everybody. We had to watch. We had duties to perform. And I can tell you, there was no peace. Am I the only one in this room that had that experience? Thank you, yes. Tim, is there a major difference between repentance and actual conversion? You know, I think, I think there is, actually. But I think they're very tightly connected. I think they're tightly connected. One without the other. Yeah, yeah. Yes. There must be more to it than just this, because you know, it says that God repented. So, I mean... I think that's a translational word. In, 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 look at some other text, you might find it translated differently. I mean, other translations. Yeah. Um, what does it mean, none but the contrite are forgiven? Do you believe that? None but the contrite are forgiven. Does it mean that God is unforgiving, or that the, only the contrite experience the forgiveness God freely offers? Yes. Well, it, it, 1 John 1 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. The contrite will confess their sins. Okay. And, and, and for those who, who don't confess, will God not forgive them? Or does he still forgive? But they remain unforgiven because they don't open their heart to experience the forgiveness he forgives because they won't open their heart. See, this is a, this is a, this is a very big question. The, the question is very, very, really much this. Is the problem... God is unforgiving until we confess or until Christ pleads his blood or until legal payment is made or until something God holds back 
in an unforgiving state, waiting for either our repentance, our, our confession, Christ pleading in our behalf, the payment of a blood payment, whatever you put there, God is, and when that happens, then God hands out or extends forgiveness. Or is God forgiving every sinner? That's the character of God. He's already forgiven from, his personal pardon is extended, but many have hardened hearts and don't open their heart to experience. So they remained in an unforgiven state. <laughs> Because they haven't experienced forgiveness that has been freely offered. Which is it? I'm going to tell you, this view is the common view. That the problem is God, and God has to have that blood in order for him to forgive. You know this is the common view, don't you? You don't? Wow, read the book. It's the common view in our church. It is the common view. And uh, there's a book put by the review called The Cross of Christ by George Knight. In that book, you will find this idea that I just said repeated over and over and over again, that reconciliation required that Christ, that God be reconciled to man in addition to man being reconciled to Christ. Over and over again. You're not saying that, I mean, you're not saying that God forgives even if we don't ask. I am saying that. You are saying that. Yes. Well, how, well, well, let me ask you something. If that's the case, and he says, I stand at the door and knock, we have to open the door. If we don't open the door, he doesn't force himself in. So why would he forgive us if we didn't ask? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump ahead of my notes to get to a text. Let's see. Uh, we got a little ahead. I'll have to jump back. Where's my... Oh, this is in uh, Wednesday's lesson. This is in Isaiah chapter 55, 7 and 8. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him, for the Lord will freely pardon. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord, so forth and so on. When Christ was on the cross, now before I even go to the cross, prior to the cross, when they, let, they broke up the roof and they let the paralytic down before him in that house, remember? Before Christ healed him, he said something. Remember what did he say? That, so that you might know something. So that you might know that the Son of Man hath power and authority on earth to do something. To forgive sins. Take up your bed and walk. So, first question. Does Christ have the authority of God to forgive sins? On the cross, did Christ forgive those who put him there? Were they forgiven? Were they saved? So they were forgiven by God, but they never opened their heart to experience it. So their condition remains unforgiven. Their internal, their mind, hearts are in a condition of unforgiveness, even though God has extended forgiveness. Yeah, okay, I understand that. Okay, does that make sense? And so what is it that determines our destiny? Is it, see, this is the two models. Natural law, God's design about how he built life to operate, we are back in harmony. Under this model, the problem is sin and man. We're defective, we're deviant from God's design. God is working through the Spirit to restore us, to write the law in the heart and mind, to create us in the new image, to circumcise the heart by the Spirit, all the metaphors, to, to recreate us in holiness. It's, this is this model. Under the imposed model, though, the problem is legal, and there has to be a legal payment, and God can't forgive unless the person accepts the payment. So Jesus has made it, it's ready, but until we accept it, God still can't forgive. And so the problem is God over here. God is God is either, he's got a legal obstruction. He's either angry and wrathful, whichever. There's all these different ways that they're constructing it. But the problem is not the sin in man that needs healing and and and, and recreation. The problem is a, a, an offended God whose law has been abrogated and who, which legal payment must be made to. And that's the model that has infected Christianity because of 
Why? Because, well, you, Daniel chapter 7, a certain power is going to rise and seek to change God's law. How do they change God's law? By, by getting Christianity and the world to exchange the truth that God's law is the law of love upon which life is built, the design parameters, the principle of giving, as we've talked about in here before, that, that respiration and all those other examples, to an imposed law, just a set of rules that he enforces from on high. And, how do, and what evidence do we have for that? What church group has ever voted to change the law of gravity? Why not? Design parameter. Change the laws of health. Why not? Design parameter. When you see God's laws as design parameters, they don't vote to change them. When you see them as a list of rules, what church vote to change the day you worship on? Ah, oh, list of rules. See, it's not just the day. It is this idea that God is an impose, is a dictator who imposes rules and then imposes punishment. This infected Christianity, and it doesn't matter which day you're on, if you're operating under this model, you're still giving homage to the beast. Yes? So the question, the crucial question is always, on what basis... Does Christ have the right and the power to forgive? It depends on how you define forgiveness. Forgiveness can be defined by some as a legal issue, pardon, legal pardon. It can be defined as personal uh, letting go of one's demand for, for retribution. It can be defined, and it is defined in at least one place that I can mark for you, as the entire process of reconciliation and restoration with God. And if you define it in that way, that forgiveness is not God's personal pardon, it's not legal payment, it is the entire process of reconciliation, then it is true people are not forgiven until they repent. Because they're not reconciled until they repent. So it depends on how you define the word. And that depends again how you define sin. What is sin? Anybody want to take that one up? What is sin? Transgression of the law. Okay, which which is? What's the law? How do you define the law? Pardon? Failure to love. Failure to love. Sin is a principle which is deviant or antagonistic to God's character of love. It is the principle of self-centeredness. It is seeking to get rather than seeking to give. It is, it is uh, uh, being out of harmony with the way God constructed life to operate. That's what sin is. And that's because the law is what God is himself. The law is a, a description of God himself. Yes. The law is... The law... The, see, when you say it that way... It's true, but it sometimes, to me, this doesn't, is not quite as compelling. It's more compelling to say it this way. God, who is love, who is the designer and the builder, when he built his universe, constructed it to operate in harmony with himself. Right. And that, those construction protocols are laws. Yeah. Yeah. Law of respiration. Every breath you take, you give away. Carbon dioxide plants give back oxygen to you. It's a law, but it was a design parameter. And if you deviate, decide to selfishly hoard your carbon dioxide with a plastic bag, what happens? You're transgressing the law. What happens? God has to have a judgment. He has to have a court trial. He has to say, wait a minute. Now he tied a plastic bag over his head. Now how many find him guilty? Come on. This is what, this is this distortion. This is the devil's view of God. Exactly. exactly. Yes, way in the back. Dr. J has always presented this as either one or the other. Can't it be that if the natural consequences do not result, then God must allow an imposed result, not necessarily by him, to result? Uh, actually, no. Um, not at all. Um, you, if somebody ties a plastic bag, if you, if you walk in on a stranger, somebody you don't even know, 
Just walk in, and they just kick the chair out from under their feet as they hung themselves, and they're dangling into it, twitching. It's three seconds after they did this. You don't know this person. What will justice, if you want to do what's right, what will you do? They're breaking the law now. They're breaking the law of respiration. They're transgressing the law. So what does justice require you do? You're confused. I can see that. (laughs) If you're operating in God's law of love, it it requires that you deliver him. You lift him up. You rescue him. You put him back in harmony. You get the rope off his neck. You get him to help or her to help. This is what you do. This is what justice requires. And if you recall, in, the, in my new book and in, and in the lessons we've done recently, I give you the scriptures that every time, justice in scripture is delivering the oppressed, not punishing the oppressor. Always delivering the oppressed. So does God use rules, though? And this is the question. God use of law. Did he give the Ten Commandments? Absolutely. And the Bible tells you why he gave them. And Paul, and Paul says to Timothy, the law is good if one uses it wisely. But the law was not intended for the righteous, but for the wicked. It wasn't given for the people who have the law written on their heart. It was given for the people who deviant from it, for the murderers, for the slave traders, for those who abuse the others, and so forth. He gives this whole list of awful things. The law was given for them. Why? Who needs MRI scans? People who are perfectly healthy or people with disease in their, in their body. The MRI scanner is for the disease, not for the healthy. And the commandments were given to, Paul says in Romans, I wouldn't have known what sin was if it wasn't for the efficacy of the law, if it wasn't for the law examining me. It was when I looked in the law in the mirror and saw, oh, thou shalt not covet. Then I realized how sick I was. The law was given to diagnose, to expose in us, to bring us to conviction, to bring us to the point that we say, oh, I thought I was perfectly healthy, but I'm not. I need help. It's not a... can someone get well by trying to appease the MRI scanner? <laughs> they got cancer in their lung, and they go and take an offering to the MRI scanner. <laughs> you can't get well by trying to appease the law. And this is penal substitution. Christ died and made a payment to the law. This was told to me by one of the chairs of the Department of Religion in this university right over here. Christ had to die to pay the blood payment to the law. Really? Think it through. No, he didn't. Why did he have to die? To, as the remedy for sin, to heal and cure us. It was our need. Why does the person in renal failure, why does the person donate a kidney? Why do you have to donate a kidney? Because the hospital administrator demanded one. No. No, the condition did. We could not be saved without Christ. It was our condition that demanded it. So God did use law, but he never has to impose external penalties for deviations from the law. That doesn't mean he doesn't discipline. Loving, Lord disciplines those he loves, and many confuse discipline with imposed punishment. They're not the same. Many young kids who don't understand mom and dad's rules to protect them from the natural laws of health and say, you shall not smoke, you shall not drink, and all this stuff. They get these rules for them, and if you do, and, and have been blessed by parental imposed discipline. Take the car keys. You can't do this because of that. Discipline. But that discipline is not punishment. It's not an exaction of vengeance. It's not to torture and torment, to inflict harm. It's always to redeem and to save and protect. Yes, God disciplines those he loves, but that's not the same thing as inflicting punishment. Yes? I have two requests from Eric to 
for you to explain this verse. Revelation 13.10 He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience of the and faith of the saints. Context. This is a prophetic verse. Um, here's my paraphrase of that verse. Anyone who's determined to be, to be a captive of sin, then into bondage he will go. Anyone whose character develops upon the kill or be killed principle will in the end be killed. Overcoming the selfish drive requires patient endurance and trust upon those who are healed. Would you say sin is a symptom of something else and that discipline is the roadmap? I would say sin is a condition of heart and mind that is fear and self-driven and is deviant from the condition of selfless love. It's opposite of that condition. That's sin. It's a condition of heart and mind where we're afraid for self and we're out to self-protect. So we'll exploit and hurt others to protect self. That's sin, self-centeredness. However, sins are a symptom of that heart condition. And in Matthew 5, Christ said, you say if you commit adultery, you commit sin. I say if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you say if you commit murder, bad act, bad behavior, you commit sin. I say if you hate your brother in your heart. He's making very clear that the behaviors are the symptoms of hearts. Thus he says in another place, the good man brings forth good out of the good sort of him, and the evil man brings forth evil of the evil sort up in him. The issue is the heart condition, which can lead to the symptoms of bad behaviors. But all too often in the imposed model, it's all about the behaviors. That's why a Pharisee can be looked at as being holy and healthy when they're picking up stones to stone the prostitute that they trapped into adultery, and they're righteous because their behaviors are right, even though their hearts are evil. That's the imposed model. We haven't done anything wrong. You can't prosecute me. But under the natural model, it doesn't matter whether you've taken cough suppressant and you're not coughing up phlegm, you're still dying of pneumonia. Your condition has to be changed. Your heart has to be renewed. You have to, as Christ said, you have to be reborn, recreated, regenerated, the law written on the heart and mind. Okay. Um, so what about this idea of those that, that perform certain duties for acceptance and are watchful against temptation, uh, and, they have to, and they feel like they have to do these duties in order to be accepted with God? I had a patient in my office this week who said he no longer believes in God. Despite having been raised in the church and believing God his entire life, no longer believes in God. He's in his 20s, early 20s. I asked him to tell me what happened. Tell me what happened. What happened that you no longer believe in God? He, he recited two incidents that led him to this. Two incidents. One, he was at a conservative Christian college and was listening to contemporary Christian music with his iPod. And some other students heard him listening to this music and told him because he was listening to that music, he was going to burn in hell. And the second, that he has struggled with depression for, for about four years now. And his multiple people and church leaders, pastors and elders in his church, have told him that if he would pray diligently and have faith, he would be delivered from depression. And he prayed for hours, for days, and for months. But he only got worse. So there must not be a God. What would you say to him? You don't pray to this. Oh, you might. I don't believe in that God either. That kind of God is not a God to, to love and believe in. Good for you. I don't believe in him either. Good for you. Yeah, that God shouldn't be believed in. Excellent. What else do you say after that? I, I, I like where Wendell was going. 
treat the disease. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's unfortunate, but we get our concept of God from the way we're treated by mm-hmm. other people that we feel believe the same way we do. So people who purport to represent him. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. See, if, if, the, if the people who said that were devout Satanists, he wouldn't have been distraught by that. Exactly. Exactly. Even if they were maybe Buddhist or Muslim, yeah. he might not have been distraught by that, right? Exactly. So where do you think Satan has his most effective agents? The Outside the church or in the church? That's what uh, Russell was quoting scripture. They have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. Yeah, and, and that passage is in Timothy, and it says, Mark this. In the time of the end, there will be terrible times. In the last days, there will be terrible times. People will be lovers of themselves, not the holy. And all these ugly things, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Yeah, it doesn't say these are the godless, the agnostics, the atheists. These are the the people claiming godliness, yeah. I have had people that I've talked to with comments like that, and and I just say, you know, search the scriptures. Don't don't look at what other people are saying about God. Absolutely. Well said. Bottom of the lesson on Sunday, it says, Why is it so difficult to acknowledge our sins and repent of them? Why is this so difficult? Well, bottom line, come on, very straightforward, fear. We're afraid. Isn't that the deal? We're afraid of rejection, afraid of embarrassment, afraid of punishment, afraid of retaliation, afraid of humiliation, afraid of not being loved, not being liked, not being accepted, afraid that somebody finds out our defects, they're going to think worse of us. Is this the reason? Why would you be afraid in this group right now to stand up and confess your gambling, alcohol, narcotic, or pornography problems? Just come on, tell us about it. Why not? Why wouldn't you do that? I mean, we all love the Lord, right? So we love you. We love you. Tell us. Come on, tell us. We don't. Why don't we? We're afraid. We're afraid of each other. We're afraid of each other. We're afraid that if you look into my soul and see the defects of my character, you won't like me anymore. You know the things I've done, you won't care for me anymore. This is what's so healing about the woman caught in adultery. After she was thrown down, she knew she was in the act. She knew what she had done. She expected the stones to fly. And after Christ dispatched the crowd, he looked at her. Imagine the look he had in her eye. What, do you, what, what kind of a, a expression on his face do you think he had? I'm so glad to see you. I missed you. Neither do I condemn you. This was healing. This is grace. Go and live a better life. Wow. This is why 12 steps work and church doesn't for so many. Because at 12 steps, they can go and say, I've got problems with alcohol. Hey, we're glad you're here, Steve. We're glad you're here. Church, I've got problems with alcohol. Now, what offices do you hold in the church? Do you think you need to suspend those for a little while while you get this grip on this? Have you, have you been praying? You pray for deliverance, you'll have it. God promises. Pay your tithe. He says, pay your tithe. <laughs> yes, Wendell. A couple of quotes. Um, Christ object lesson 146. When perplexities arise and difficulties confront you, look not for your help to humanity. Trust all with God. 
The practice of telling our difficulties to others only makes us weak and brings no strength to them. It lays upon them the burden of our spiritual infirmities, which they cannot relieve. We seek the strength of erring, finite men when we might have the strength of the unerring, infinite God. And, and, and what do you think that means? That we never should talk to another human being about our problems, never confide in another? Hmm. You, you can read that same. You can read that same author where she commended Moses for talking to Jethro and getting counsel. Well, he, should, he shouldn't have done that. He, he could talk to God face to face. What was he talking to Jethro for? You have to take these things in context. I, I, when we take one isolated passage and then apply it globally to our whole life, then what happens when we read things like that? I know people will they'll just suffer, and they'll just suffer, and they won't counsel with anybody. There's a play. There's truth in what you said. There's truth in that quote. But it's also contextual. And it's not an absolute truth. When Jesus said, turn the other cheek, does that mean if, if you have an unruly five-year-old who slaps their parent, the parent should just let them hit them? Turn the other cheek, let the parent do it. Let the child do it. That what, did, did it apply to that circumstance? Or should the parent discipline that child in love? So it's, it, everything, every instruction has to be taken in context. So I'm glad you brought that up because it allows us to, to analyze both sides of that. There's a time we don't want to just share all of our business with everybody because people can't handle it. We need to be wise in who we share with because for sure we come before the church and say some things, we'll do a lot of harm. That was in response to the question why we don't stand up. And... Yes, and I think that's where you're going with that. But it's not the idea that we should never have a, a mature confidant to talk to. But yes, I think in the church there are a lot of people who can't handle it. Yeah, that, there's no question. I was going to say something, but I won't. <laughs> um, but, th- but think about this think about the, the idea why we don't come even to church privately often and, and, sh- and seek someone to help us if you were struggling with a physical illness of some kind might you ask for help and how would the church treat you if they found out you had cancer how would the church treat you the members differently than if they found out you had AIDS <laughs> Think about pressure. No. Pressure. Yeah. My church would stand behind me. Compassion, support. How about if they find you've got a porn addiction? Much compassion and as much support as if you got cancer? Wow. What about Christ? You think he would? The woman caught in adultery. How did he treat her? Yes. It's like there's different degrees of compassion that people have, as, even as Christians, not just in the world. But whether it's a sickness or a disease or a sin that you've committed, there's different degrees of how much compassion they'll give you. Also, people see cancer is not something that you chose to have. You chose to have a pornographic. Oh, there we go, see? See? And this is exactly, we're back under that imposed model. You are doing this to yourself. No, this is, what, this is what most people think. It's mm-hmm. called oh, okay, okay, most thank you. Most people think that, that you don't choose to have cancer or tuberculosis or anything, but you choose to smoke. You choose to have pornography. You choose to have these things in life. Yeah, I think, I think it really goes back to how we view each other. We view each other when it comes to character through the imposed law lens, not through the natural. Not that we were born in sin, conceived in iniquity, Psalms 51, born with a condition of heart that is already deep. We didn't choose. How many chose your parents? How many chose to be born with a nature that we have? We had no choice in our birth nor our condition of heart at our natural birth. We had no choice. Christ gives us a choice for rebirth. 
But our natural birth, we, it's like an HIV-infected man and woman get together and have a baby born HIV-infected. The baby did nothing wrong. Still has a condition which, if unremedied, is terminal. That's us. Everybody since Adam and Eve, born in a condition which we didn't choose, which is deviant from God's eye and is terminal, but God knows we didn't choose it. He's not upset with us. He's not mad any more than you would be if that was your grandchild born to an HIV-infected man and woman, and it was your grandchild. You wouldn't be upset with your grandchild. You would seek to deliver and heal your grandchild. This is God's attitude toward us. But when we see it under this imposed law model, we're deviant and we got these symptoms, we're doing this bad stuff, we've got to be punished, then what happens? Nobody wants to go for healing. Um, remember, in fact, remember the memory verse. See, what happens is, it's not that you're sick and you need healing, it's you're bad and you need either pardon or punishment. That's what, that's what this idea leads to. So the memory verse for this week is, those who seek to cover their sins don't prosper. Does this distortion of this that we're talking about right now of Christian lead to doctrines that teach people to cover their sins? Like when when the father looks at me, he doesn't see me because I'm covered with the robe of righteousness. I'm covered by the blood. My record has been erased by the blood of the Lamb. Sins are being covered over. Why do we want to do this? If you were sick and you went into the ER and the doctor came, would you want your older brother to stand in front of you and have the doctor examine your older brother instead of you so he doesn't know how bad you are? Would you want the nurse to erase the records of all the the tests that have come in so when the doctor looks at your record, he won't know how bad off you are? No. When we understand it under the natural law model, then we pray like David. Father, search me and see the wicked way in me. Find it. Find what's defective. And create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. It's real, real regenerational, recreational, transformational, what God wants to do in us. But this other thing, it, it leads people to this, this legal false security where you've had your sins paid, uh, uh, pay, the penalty paid for them, everything's been covered, the Father can't look at you. In, in a local church near here, I saw a conference leader on the stage talk about how thankful he was that when, Jesus, when the Father looks at him, he can't see his sin because Jesus stands between him and the Father and covers him with his robe. Ridiculous. Let me give you an example. HIV heroin user. Just just think of yourself. You're really, really sick because you've been deviating from the laws of health, which also are deviating from the laws of the land because you've been doing HIV. uh, You've been doing IV heroin. IV heroin. Now you're sick. You've got an infected heart because dirty needles. Do you want to go for the judge? All your deeds and all your behaviors be brought out for him to examine and make judgment upon and pass sentence over? Do you want to go to the doctor? Have the doctor have all the same deeds and actions and behaviors and examine you very critically and find everything is wrong and pass judgment on you known as diagnosis and sentence known as therapeutic intervention upon you? When we present God in this model, nobody wants to go to him. We all want protection. We want to hide from him. And that's what, no, that's what nominal Christianity, this is why the gospel of the kingdom has not gone to the world because we presented this lie. When we present this model and God as revealed in Christ, people want to run to him. Please find what's wrong. Fix me. Heal me. And this is what we're waiting for, this message to go to the world. You know, criminals, person who's sick goes to the doctor. Criminals who appear before the judge hire lawyers whose job it is to obstruct the truth and prevent the truth from ever being seen. And how many times you heard, Jesus is our advocate in heaven to plead our case. He's our lawyer. I'm going to jump because we're getting low. Let's go to Friday's lesson. Uh, first sentence in Friday's lesson says, Confession 
will not be acceptable to God without sincere repentance and reformation. This is what this says. Confession will not be acceptable to God without sincere repentance and reformation. Anybody confused by that? Any thoughts about that? It's not acceptable to him because it won't do any good. Thank you. It's not acceptable. I, I put on here, bathing is not acceptable to God without soap and water. <laughs> Why is bathing not acceptable without soap and water? Because it really wouldn't be bathing. It wouldn't, be, it wouldn't get clean. God wants us clean. So confession isn't confession without repentance and reformation. God doesn't want simple acknowledgement of misdeeds. He wants us healed, restored, cleansed, renewed, saved, transformed, regenerated, rebuilt back into his original ideal. Thus, it's not okay or acceptable with him for us to simply acknowledge our, our shortcomings and, and substitute a false remedy that gives false security because we've acknowledged and had payment made. He wants repentance and genuine reformation so that we're renewed to be like him. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are our creator, our builder, our designer, and you are a God of love revealed perfectly in Christ and and that it's not okay with you that we're dying in the sick state of our fears and insecurities and self-centeredness, that you have brought through Christ a remedy, a healing solution, and your spirit is poured out to provide, to take all that Christ has achieved and reproduce it in us, and we open our hearts because you want us to trust and ask that your spirit will, will cleanse, heal, restore, give us the gift of repentance, a new heart that desires what heaven desires and is repulsed by the things of this world, and that we might be effective in understanding with clarity the truth versus the subtle distortion that infects the church so that we can be a healing um, agent for you to go out and, and help free other minds because we want to see the world lighted with the truth of your knowledge, the knowledge of your character, that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.